So Stephen, welcome to uh, the show. Uh, it's day five of the festival. We're here at the Authors Lounge. You have been here uh, talking about the new book that you have, uh, a new version of, of the book. But I, I want to start with your experience just this week. Uh, what's it been like for you to be at these sessions and, and being up on stage, being in the audience? What, what have you experienced so far? Well, so far, largely in the audience, except on Saturday and Sunday when it was difficult to get anywhere near yes. the audience. Yes. <laughs> that is, it was quite extraordinary, I think, in uh, the number of people who were here. I mean, it's wonderful, I think, especially to see students, yes. so many students coming. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to someone this morning from the festival, and they said that something in the order of 500,000 people yeah. might be coming this year. 400 this, to 500,000 people. And they have to stop them after a while because it, it's their full capacity. Yesterday was, I mean, yeah. Saturday and Sunday were astonishing, really. Yes. So, so we finally retreated. <laughs> but what's really fascinating about the festival is the, I mean, the range of topics and people that, you know, are, that you invite and are attracted mm -hmm. to this because it, it's really the kind of range you, I think, can't see anywhere else, really, right, probably. Right. Yeah, so. And <clears throat> dominated, no, about, no doubt, by, by literary people, as it should be with a, yeah. such, a, such a title. But uh, nonetheless, a lot of other people doing other things as well. So it's, it's really an amazing experience. So. And so you came to India, I believe, for the first time in the 60s. Yes, I did. Uh, yes, that's right. I what came. What drew you to India back then? Uh, back then, uh, it was a kind of leftover from, this, this is almost embarrassing to say this now, right? My mother was an English teacher, and one of the books she read to us as children as an English teacher was Kip, was Kim, right? So I, and that was one thing. The second thing is we had lived in England uh, when I was first in university. Uh, I first went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and of course, for the first time, met a lot of Indians. Mm -hmm. I mean, not as many as are there now, but sure. uh, so it's a kind of combination of these two things. On the one hand, I had this kind of light romantic notion of Kipling and these uh, and the, the things he describes, and secondly, a more personalized um, knowledge of of in, individual Indians in Hendon in North London, where we where we lived. But, mm -hmm. uh, so, so one of the first things I did when I got to Delhi was I wanted to ride in these trains such as, had these wonderful names like the Punjab Mail, <laughs> things like this. So, so initially it was that, it was this odd combination of this kind of romantic notion plus personal context. So I had a chance to, um, really a wonderful opportunity. Uh, that was at the time when the American MC in Delhi was awash in rupees mm -hmm. because they had this PL4A program and the rupee at that time was not a convertible currency. Mm -hmm. And so when India paid back some of the loans that they, they got from the American, especially for agriculture in those mm -hmm. days, uh, they paid back in rupees and the rupees wound up in the basement of the American embassy or, really? or somewhere <laughs> nearby in any case. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a, there were a lot of rupees in, in the American embassy. And they had a Fulbright program uh, to invite new graduates, college graduates, uh, to come to India to teach English. Mm -hmm. Now, there were two theories about this, why they did this. I don't know how much they believed in either one of these. Sure. Uh, one of them was that it would help to maintain the standards of, standard mm -hmm. of English in India. I think that's kind of a I mean, 
for America for people with American accents to try to maintain them. <laughs> because I remember my poor students in Benares, of course, it took about a month and a half before they could understand much of what I was saying. Uh, the other reason was to interest Americans in Indian culture and society and politics. I don't think we did did much good in terms of raising maintaining the standards of English, but but many many people on that program wound up doing what I eventually wound up doing, that is to say, going to graduate school in South Asian studies and and going back to do research and coming back many many times mm -hmm. after that. So that was the kind of genesis of that. Experience. So uh, and. Also at that, at that time, I mean, teaching or trying to teach English, and of course nobody had given us any instruction on how to, how to do this, but it also enables us to travel around the country a great mm -hmm. deal, so it was a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah. so like, as you mentioned, you know, you've, you've spent years uh, studying and, and documenting and mm -hmm. teaching history, South Asian uh, studies and Islamic history. You particularly, uh, the book that I'm interested in, especially learning a little bit from you about, is, is the biography of Babur, the first mm -hmm. Mughal emperor, really. When was the first time you, you found out about the Mughal emperors and the Mughal empire in India, and what was it that made you want to tell his story in particular? Well, the first time, of course, is when I was in, first came to India and mm -hmm. visited all the Mughal monuments in Delhi. Right? So. I mean, whatever else one thinks the Mughals achieved or didn't achieve, at least they put up a great deal, number of beautiful buildings. That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So there's a great deal of controversy about the Mughals otherwise, but, yes. but they really built some beautiful buildings. Mm -hmm. In any case, um, the, the sort of latent interest in this um, was um, really stumbling on, for the first time, a Babur's autobiography. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something which is an extraordinary, really an extraordinary piece of work. I, I don't know how many people have ever, it's not the easiest thing in the world to read, but I think it's the, the richest autobiography in the pre-modern world, mm -hmm. in any society, anywhere. And it was originally you know, in, in Arabic? Or? It was originally in, in Chagatai Turkish, which is the precursor of Uzbek and the, and the Turkish languages of Central Asia. Right, right. I was written in Arabic script, but um, at that time, at, the, at that time, Turkish was written in Arabic script. So, mm -hmm. and I think it's hard to appreciate. I think it's hard for people for people to appreciate because there was an extraordinary amount of detail about his campaigns and battles and so forth. And unless you're sort of familiar with these Turkish and Mongol names, and it's a little bit difficult to wade through, but. It's an extraordinary piece of work. I mean, there's nothing else like it in any society. Honestly, until very late, maybe 19th to 20th century, there's, there's no autobiography that rich. In addition to which, Barber wrote a lot of, he was a very consciously tried to make himself a serious poet. And so there's a whole collection of his poetry. In fact, he produced two collections of his poetry. Most of it's in Chagatai Turkish. Um, and there are a few poems in Turkish that he pardon me, in Persian, he wrote as a young man. People like Babur were in Central Asia at that time, in the 15th century. Turkish was the language, the native language. Mm -hmm. Persian was their educated language. Mm -hmm. It's almost like what happened with English later on in India, sure. that is, the people right. were speaking a native language plus an educated language. Mm -hmm. um, so he wrote a huge amount of, of poetry, which is unusual also because in it he some often talks about how he feels about things. Mm -hmm. 
including including India, um, or what he was doing at various points in his life. Uh, he spent uh, about 20 years in the area where he was born in Central Asia, about 20 years in Kabul, um, and then about only four years in India. Um, but the years that he spent in Kabul, uh, particularly, he was had a relatively secure period for a period of time. Um, and there was a great deal of writing of poetry and drinking. <laughs> and in the first biography of Barbara that I wrote, which was published in 2006, which is a, the longer version of what the most recent one is, a kind of abbreviation of that, uh, I quote some of these poems when he talks about being completely drunk out of his mind <laughs> with his friends. And um, this is like 1519, before he invaded India. Mm -hmm. And so the, these people, the people from Central Asia, these Turko Mongols, they're Muslims, no doubt, but they didn't necessarily take Islam seriously. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Right. But they certainly didn't take it seriously when it came to drinking or mm -hmm. taking intoxicating drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are these wonderful poems in which he talks about being just completely drunk, you know, and, right. <laughs> at a time of Ramadan when people should be fasting or something. Right. Like <laughs> but, of course, what's interesting, really, in the long term about him is that the combination of the autobiography and his poetry gives you a picture of an individual which is un unmatched, really, in, in pre-Islamic societies of almost any kind. Mm -hmm. uh, so. so what was he considered, given that he had this huge empire, yes. uh, how did the public, feel, what was his perception in the public when, when he was in India, for, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, for those four years? Did they... Did they love him? Did they fear him? What was his, his public perception? Yeah, when, he, when he invaded India, his purpose was... What had happened to him is he'd been forced out of Central Asia by the Uzbeks, who are now in Uzbekistan. And so he first went to Kabul, uh, which he found out, just like every, every, other, person, every other country that's tried to rule, rule Afghanistan, he mm -hmm. found out it was a disastrous problem. Right. And so he invaded India because it was the only place left to found an empire, seriously. Right, right. right. And it was not only the only place left, but a very rich place. Mm -hmm. So he went to India. So he arrived in India with, he had, when he invaded India, he invaded with about seven or 8,000 troops. That's all. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. And as he points out himself in his memoirs, he said, when he's talking about dealing with the local population, he said, well, these people didn't know our language and we didn't know theirs. Mm -hmm. And he said, initially in Agra, people were frightened out of their mind by this. They didn't know who these people were. Uh, here's, you have a new group of people turning up, claiming to rule this country. And Babur's claim to rule India was simply specious. I mean, it was because he was a descendant of Timur, mm -hmm. who had invaded India in 1398, you know, sacked Delhi and stolen everything he could to take him back to Central yeah. Asia. And so Babur claimed to have a right to of course, that's what people did in those days, yes. Claimed to have a right to rule India because he was a descendant sure, of Timur. Right? Sure. Of course, it's not true, but never mind, because that's what people did. So he was only in India for four years. Uh, he spent most of that time, of course, carrying on these campaigns to try to establish some kind of, some kind of de degree of control over Hindustan, the Punjab, and Hindustan, mm -hmm. the Gangetic Valley. Um, the uh, what's so striking about this is, first of all, how difficult it was. Mm -hmm. 
because, of course, unlike, say, Central Asia, where you have one city and then another one 500 miles away, mm-hmm. in India you have cities everywhere and people are large populations. Mm-hmm. And so his, his attempt to pacify India, and he, it was done solely because he wanted to have a place for his relatives who could live, as one of his descendants put it, a civilized and comfortable life. That's all, really. Right. That's their principal goal. Um, but they had a terribly difficult time, and in the third and fourth years of his life, before he died in 1530, he writes a series of poems in which he shows that he appreciated the extraordinary, extraordinary problem of trying to, pa- trying to pacify a country like India. Mm-hmm. He talks about how homesick he was for Kabul. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, "He says, well, I had the desire to come here, and now I'm stuck here." Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he, many of his, many of his most closest friends and military people who invaded India with him left left India very quickly within a year because they couldn't stand the climate. Mm-hmm. Went back to Kabul, so he has some wonderfully interesting things in his autobiography and his poetry about how he wished he were back in Kabul, drinking and reciting poetry with these people. Mm-hmm. You know. And then towards, really towards the last couple of years at the end of his life, you could tell he was sick a lot. Not surprising, like people yeah. in Central Asia, that, you know, probably, who knows what, you know, right. dysentery, right. whatever. But. And so increasingly in 1529, 1530, he was sick, sometimes for weeks on end. And so the last series of poems that he wrote are these kind of I suppose you can think of this kind of tragic poems in which he talked about how he had wanted to conquer India, but now really hated it, hated being there. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that he realized the extraordinary difficulty of trying to pacify a country where you have such a large population, so many rulers of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. And it increasingly, he, you could see increasingly he seemed to think for him it was impossible. Mm-hmm. So given the the entire timeline of the Mughal lineage mm. in India, and given that he was, this was 500 years ago, what right. do you think is, is left of his particular legacy in the India that we are today? Was there something that he did, you know, that he set up that we possibly still use? Maybe it was, cur- like, you know, political issues, mm-hmm. economic things. Yeah. Like, well, what is his legacy, do you think, today? Well, for, for, for a period, I suppose you can say his, the legacy of founding the empire was... To establish an empire with a, it was a very, he was a very intellectually very sophisticated man and a highly cultured one, mm-hmm. and you could say that the Mughals are two things about the Mughals in terms of their dynasty, and that is that they established kind of a relative degree of centralized control for 150 odd years, mm-hmm. or however you want to think of their sure, think of their right. time, and that did allow a tremendous, I think, sort of economic uh, development to occur during that period of time. It's not because they were concerned about the population, of course, they were concerned about land revenue, but nonetheless, in terms of their unintentional effect, it was to establish a degree of peace and security over certainly the Punjab, the Gangetic Valley, Mm -hmm. central India to some degree. Um, And the second, I think the second thing is that even though Persian had been used in India during the Sultanate period, and especially the most famous of these poets was Amir Khosrowzad Levi, which you may heard. Uh, established, my, I'm sorry, my watch is coming. Sure, sure. He established. Um, they established this kind of high, 
cultural sophistication in kind of Persianate culture, which you can actually can see all around you in Jaipur and places right. like this. That is, if you see the the Amber Fort, I mean the the, the private rooms in the Amber Fort, mm -hmm. there are bits and pieces of of Mughal architecture. I mean, really, the fort itself inside is a, is a, a bit of Mughal architecture. <laughs> so you can see that that kind of thing, that kind of thing happening in terms of. In terms of long-term effects, I mean, those things have had have had a long have have had a long-term effect. Certainly, as I say, these extraordinary buildings that were, were erected, uh, the sense of uh, kind of aesthetics of the Mughals, I think, may have had the longest-term effect of all. Mm -hmm. And I suppose you can say also the the impact of this Persianate culture, which of course also has infused Urdu. Mm -hmm. I mean, Urdu culture yes. is. Is, as you probably know, is highly Persianized. At least, in, at least it was an out. I remember when I was there. But uh, so, so, so much so that maybe two thirds of the word, words in a in a, an Urdu poem might be Persian. Mm -hmm. you know, so that that kind of longevity as well. Of course, now in contemporary India, there's the whole question about the Mughals and, and right. how they should be regarded and so forth. There are two things I think is worth saying. One that. Babur did not in, invade. First of all, he was not a Central Asian barbarian. He's a highly sophisticated, literate person, literate in two languages, mm -hmm. um, and uh, who came who came out of Central Asia at a time that uh, he was represented a very sophisticated culture, which is part of kind of Persian Islamic culture. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. This is this is not sort of a Genghis Khan or Timur coming in, somebody very sophisticated. The second thing, even though he was certainly a Muslim, um, the only time he did not invade India as part of a Muslim crusade. Right? Not at all. Um, so uh, he doesn't even spend, he hardly spends even any time talking about Islam. Mm -hmm. Except when he his famous battle of Kanwa against the Rajputs, mm -hmm. because that's a battle he thought he was going to lose. Right. This is in 1527, the year after Pandipat. Mm -hmm. It's clear that he thought he was going to lose that battle, and so as a preface to that 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 particular battle, then he invoked kind of this jihad ideology mm -hmm. to try to rally his men because many of them were about to desert. Right. Just to motivate them. Just to yeah, motivate them. Right. It's the only time it happened, and I should also say his description of that battle, he didn't write himself. It was written by an Iranian kind of intellectual literary guy who who could write a kind of traditional description of a Muslim battle. When, when Barber wrote descriptions of battles, it had none of that quality at all. Mm -hmm. But it is true that in that particular battle, he really did use those that ideology to try to rally his men. Mm -hmm. But what you also see is that after the battle, he never talks about it again. Mm -hmm. And the final thing I think it should be said is one is the other thing I suppose you can look to is the institutions, not only the buildings, but the thing that Babur loved, the institution that he was most connected with for both architectural and social reasons was the garden. Mm -hmm. A Persianate garden, right. like the garden you see at the Taj Mahal yeah. or other places in India, those gardens they had a tremendous impact, and you could almost you could say that also not only the, the construction of the garden, but when he talks about them, 
from his point of view, that was the most important social environment. Mm -hmm. So the thing that he liked more than anything else, the thing he wanted to go back to in Afghanistan, was to go back to these gardens where these characters would sit around. They'd be drinking. They would have, you know, dancing boys. I mean, they would plan military campaigns. They would plant. They would have plants, exotic plants for their gardens. Um, and so that particular institution, he uses the term, which I'm sure is in Urdu, which is subat. Mm -hmm. uh, which means conversation, and, yeah, okay. um, and when he's describing the, the the society in these gardens, and when he, in his book, in, in his autobiography, in his poetry, he, he never talks about. Uh, he apparently did order the uh, the construction of three mosques. Apparently, when he's in India, mm -hmm. he never talks about those. Right, right. But he, what is what he does talk about is building these gardens yeah. and how important they were to him and mm -hmm. how different they were from the society that he countered in India. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a cultural snob. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, really. I mean, he criticized India for all sorts of reasons. One of the things he criticized India for was a society which was broken up into different groups and mm -hmm. didn't mix together. Yeah. Whereas his own gang, whatever you might think of them, would sit around and drink together mm -hmm. and recite poetry together. So that was his principal institution, which he, in fact, when he got to Agra, he had his, his various emirs and so forth, wood. Mm -hmm. I mean, he built gardens right around Agra, in and around Agra, before the Taj was built, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and then his, his emirs, to copy him, they, they also built gardens along the river. And so the local population, who I say didn't know who, the, who these people were at all, mm -hmm. and could have cared less, um, uh, they started to refer to uh, Agra as Kabul. Mm. <laughs> because all these right. gardens were being built. Right, right, right. And I said when I was writing the book, of course, I said, you know, seven or 8,000 people cannot build these gardens all over India like this. So I suppose those kinds of things you can talk about yeah, as a legacy yeah. and the kinds of things you see is still part of Indian culture, I think. Right. Right? So, yeah. Well, uh, Stephen, thank you. The book is called Babur, Timurid Prince and Mughal Emperor, 1483 to 1530. Thank you for being on our show, and I hope you have a wonderful time. My pleasure. It was wonderful talking time. to you. So. Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jaipur Bites is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Play Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host, Lakshdatta, and thank you for listening. Thank you.